Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations by S&P Global. My name is Tom Scott. I head up S&P Global's Global Agribusiness Consulting Team. Thank you for joining us for this conversation where we will explore what's happening in agribusiness. Joining me for this conversation are Patricia Louis-Monso, Head of Agriculture and Metals Analytics, and Paul Hughes, who is the Chief Ag Economist and Head of Commodity Research within the Agro Group. So uh, to start things off, Paul, let's let's start with you. It's been an eventful year in agribusiness, um, a lot going on, but you can, can you sort of set the stage for us and kind of give us a 30,000 foot view of what's happening in global agriculture and what some of the drivers are? Yeah, Tom, it has indeed been a very, very eventful year, uh, which is characterized by, you know, by inflation, uh, global inflation and to really kind of tell that story, I'm going to go back quite a few years. You know, if we go back, you know, over the last 30 years or so, global trade has expanded uh, throughout the world and throughout the world economy, not only in agriculture, but um, uh, but also in the in other parts of the economy as well. Uh, when we look at what is traded around the world in agricultural commodities. It has really grown significantly, as, either as a percentage of production or consumption. There's a lot of wonderful things that have happened uh, with uh, world trade. It helps expand the economy um, globally, and it also reduces inflation. But there's also some risks that were kind of until recently unidentified. And, and that is when those supply chains, which are longer uh, in world trade, uh, that when they get fractured, they get they're more difficult and they take longer to repair. Um, now, if you take then into um, also with while that expansion in world trade has been happening, there's been a shift in world trade, especially in agricultural commodities. U.S. used to be the dominant exporter of grains and oil seeds uh, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, that shift has really gone to the south, to Brazil and Argentina in grains and oil seeds and to the Black Sea. Uh, now, when you, you look at what's happened in just the last two and a half years, there has been kind of what I would say is two black swan events, uh, a global pandemic uh, and a major grain and oil seed exporter invading another grain and oil seed, major uh, grain and oil seed exporter. Now, while these may not be exactly black swan events because we've had global pandemics before and we've had major wars before, uh, it's been a long time since the world has had to deal with these things. Well, what those two events have done have fractured the supply chains uh, because of um, lockdowns that have been rolling around the world and causing worker shortages in in manufacturing and agriculture and transportation and logistics, you know, and, and obviously the disruption that has taken place with Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. So these two events have really created uh, a situation where for the end users of agricultural commodities, you have longer lead times, you have supply shortages, and you have escalating prices. And that's, that's where we are today. But you know, Paul, what you're describing is a lot of change. Some of it's structural. Some of it's uh, very disruptive and immediate. And you know, with that change, a lot of volatility. So, what should we th be thinking about 
what are some of the big areas moving forward that uh, that we should be thinking about in terms of global agriculture? Yeah, look, looking forward, I think it's fair for one to presume that the COVID impact continues to kind of fade into the background. Um, there are still rolling lockdowns taking place in China, but but very few places around the world. So I would think the COVID impact would uh, would continue to fade. The war in Ukraine is a wild card, and I'm certain has more unpredictable twists and turns ahead. Um, but also looking forward is in longer term is uh, climate change. So you know it's undeniable the world's getting warmer. Um, and you know, with that seems to be uh, increased weather events, uh, extreme weather events. To this point, agriculture and agricultural advancements and technology and migration of production has kind of fought to a stalemate with climate change. So when we look at yields, um, uh, the trend yields that tend to grow on a per unit of land basis that uh, go up a percent and a quarter, percent and a half a year, those are still intact and yield variability really isn't any different um, and is not growing. So to this point, the climate part of climate change has not impacted production uh, significantly, not in a long-term way. Um, however, one has to ask how long that can continue if we continue to see uh, temperature rises as we have seen over the growing over the last 40 years or so. Um, there is another impact, however, and that's on the demand side. So agricultural commodities are increasingly being sought after to reduce carbon emissions and greenhouse gases in the motor fuel sector around the world, and particularly in, in North America and, um, and in the EU. Um, that becomes a really introduces a new demand for um, for the agricultural sector, uh, shifting the demand curve outward. And it's been quite disruptive, especially in the vegetable oil markets. Um, U.S. soybean oil markets have, have increased dramatically. Uh, their prices have increased dramatically over the last 24 months. And it's changed the whole oilseed crush industry uh, as you know, the entire crush industry was built over the last 20 years or so to solve a problem of, of getting animals high protein meals. So when you crush a soybean, it could, turns into a high protein soybean meal and a vegetable oil. And the, the whole industry has been built to produce high protein meals to get into animals' mouths, particularly in China and Asia. And now there's a new uh, problem that needs to be solved. And that is really how does the market produce enough vegetable oils to produce the bio, uh, produce uh, biofuels in the US and the EU. And, and that means that investments need to be made in crush capacity in the US and probably in the EU as well. So I, this is, let me, Patricia, let's let's pick up on what Paul is saying here. Um, this last topic, climate change leading to decarbonization and the impacts on agriculture. Can you take us a little bit deeper into that? And you know, especially maybe on the biofuels part of things. You and your team, and you're based in Europe, and and you know, you have great visibility in, into both the North American and European situation. 
with respect to biofuels. Um, unpack that a little bit for us because this is this is a huge, huge tectonic shift for agriculture. It seems like. Sure. Yes. I mean, biofuels uh, have been part of the solution to decarbonize transportation sector, and it's not only today. It has been for uh, the past. Uh, 15 years, I would say, when we look at markets like uh, uh, the gasoline in the US, 10% of that is being displaced by ethanol. If we look at Brazil, that number goes as high as 45%. Uh, even India is moving uh, towards the 10% target. Uh, or in terms of diesel, we have a really high displacement in Indonesia uh, with blends that go up to 30%. So. I mean, this is happening in a lot of markets and it's part, it's a technology and an infrastructure that is available. Uh, so it is, it is being used. Now, this context that Paul just described of uh, very high prices and volatility that we've seen, not only with the Ukraine uh, war, but also it all started uh, back with COVID and the lockdowns and the disruption yep. in the supply chain. This has impacted biofuels markets. Uh, now, it, it did in different uh, forms and ways. If we look at Europe, as you mentioned, that's where I'm based, uh, this has been the most exposed market uh, to the Ukraine uh, war because European biofuel producers were buying a lot of feedstocks from, from the Black Sea region. So not only the price went up, but there was also uh, a matter of, uh, can I get the supply or not? And there's been a lot of changes and we are seeing that production margins in particular are really under pressure uh, and, uh, and, and the situation is pretty challenging. We even had a lot of countries here in Europe uh, questioning the mandates, right? This has been uh, uh, questioning, reducing, uh, lowering the enforcement. So there's been a mix of things. Now, we have reduced our biofuels consumption for Europe since the beginning of the year. But what's very interesting to see now that we have more or less five, uh, six months of actual data for consumption after after the, the war mm -hmm. started, uh, we are seeing a really strong resilience uh, and even consumption going higher in some of these countries. So uh, we reduced the, the growth, but we are still seeing a growth uh, year on year. Now that the situation is challenging, but there's also the other side of the coin and uh, the conflict also put security of supply for energy and fuel under the spotlight. Uh, and this could uh, ultimately be beneficial for, uh, for biofuels. Now, the other very important market is the US. Uh, we've already mentioned situation has been a little bit different. Uh, we've seen a huge spike in hydrocarbon prices. And this has really increased the blending incentive uh, for ethanol in particular. So again, Consumption, we are seeing uh, the consumption of the higher blends like uh, E85 and E15 as well, uh, reaching record levels compared to, to, to previous years because of this, uh, this positive incentive. Um, only, I think, one or two months ago, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act. And when we go and check what it, what it has to say to biofuels, it, it is a very favorable uh, pack of legislation for biofuels. Um, particularly to renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. So we will definitely see demand for, uh, for feedstocks to increase to feed these as uh, Paul was, was mentioning. So there's a lot of moving pieces, but biofuels, uh, I believe they will continue to be part of, of the solution to decarbonize the economy. 
you know, I, I want to pick up on sustainable aviation fuel with you a little bit. And and but one thing I should mention, and I think the audience uh, for uh, these Sierra Week conversations know this. You know, we do this this incredible ag analysis, but we are sitting alongside our our colleagues on the energy space. Uh, you know, and so we're tremendously advantaged in terms of our visibility, you know, on the on the fuel side, the electricity side, nat gas and so forth. And 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 I think that gives us a sort of a unique perspective on this. And I think it, just listening to you and Paul, I, I I hear that, you know, that that you're so well connected into the other parts of the economy um, via our colleagues. But let me ask you about SAF because this is sustainable aviation fuel. Um, you know, this is really some, one of these things that has emerged, especially in the last year. And what what's special about SA? What we sh what should we be thinking about this? Because it's relatively new, but we've seen some very interesting and exciting projects that have been announced out there. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that, maybe, Patricia? Right. So uh, a lot of the new incentives that are uh, being discussed, uh, uh, both in the U.S. as well as as in Europe, they focus a lot on on what we call dropping fuel. So these fuels that chemically are similar, are the same as the fossil fuel equivalent. And renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuels are uh, two of these cases. So when we want to uh, increase uh, uh, the, the share of uh, renewable fuels that are being used, this is very important because we know that the more conventional biofuels, in particular biodiesel, uh, add some limitations in terms of the blend. So if we want to blend more than 10, 15, 20%, then uh, the drop in fuels uh, facilitates all the process. Now, particularly to sustainable aviation fuel is the fact that we don't have a lot of alternatives in fuels for aviation, right? When we talk about roads, uh, we are seeing a, a huge penetration rates of uh, electrical vehicles. Uh, we are talking about hydrogen. There's a, an array of solutions. When we think about planes and aviation, in terms of fuel, the options are much more limited and sustainable aviation fuel being chemically um, similar to the fossil fuel equivalent is uh, a very strong solution. And that's why uh, we are seeing a, a lot of these investments uh, being some announced, other discussed. Also companies are really um, setting the stage here, um, in, you know, publicizing their uh, their targets for for the next. Uh, I mean, sometimes 10, 20, 25 mm -hmm. years, but I mean, all these things need to be planned uh, now, right? The future starts today. So you 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 make a really interesting point there that, and you know. Um, <laughs> That word sustainable, um, it means one thing environmentally, but maybe for us in ag, it means that this demand is sustainable, right? I mean, it, it is going to be, this is a, what you've, what you've been describing, Patricia, is, is, a, is a structural demand base, and it's going to play out in different ways in different geographies. And I think you drew out, you, you highlighted some of the differences between Europe and US, for example, but it is a structural shift in demand, and which makes us think about supply and so paul let me let's go back to you and let's let's talk about supply we've been talking about demand so we we have this we have food demand we have the trade dynamics that you've been talking about we've had disruption and now as patricia has unpacked you know this this biofuel sector which is going to have a long tail and that planning cycle as she described is very long um 
what about supply? Uh, you know, where are we going to get these supplies from? from? Um, you know, we've seen the price reaction, you know, here in the last 12, 18 months, just to the renewable diesel. Now we're talking about a lot of other things, uh, including SAF. Um, help us think, help us think through where the supply comes from a little bit. Yeah, the supply, you know, over a long period of time, as I mentioned before, agriculture has been extremely resilient and, and durable, I guess I would say as well. And in, in just producing more and increasing productivity year over year over year on the same parcel of ground. Um, so presumably that will continue, although increasing temperatures and weather outcomes threaten that to continue going forward. Um, so at the same time, is um, there's been a tremendous expansion in area under production in Brazil, uh, particularly in soybeans and in corn. I would expect that to continue um, you know, with those new areas coming in to production out of Brazil, you know, at a rate of, you know, one and a half to 4% a year. Um, you know, additionally, there, there is areas of food waste throughout the supply chain, um, in the agricultural supply chain globally that could be reduced. The one thing that I would say is common to all of this, however, is price really ends up being the catalyst for all of it. Um, you know, these aren't benevolent organizations that are mostly operating in the food space. You know, they're responding to economic incentives and punishments, and, and price is going to play a really significant role going forward, uh, as it has in the past. I've, I want to come back to price uh, here in a little bit toward the end, but let, let me just follow up a little bit with you. On, you know, when we think about supply, I want to go back to some of the comments you made at the beginning, Paul, about trade. And you talked about the growth in trade in, in ag commodities. And when we talk about some of these different drivers of where we're going to get supply from, you're, we're going to have to come back to trade. What are some of the risks uh, going forward with respect to this trade issue and accessing supplies and some of the supply chain issues that we've already talked about here a little bit on this, on this conversation? Yeah, you know, what I will say is um, when we're talking about world trade, it, like I said, it's really expanded over the last 30 years or so. And, you know, whether that is coincidentally or whether that has something to do with it, that kind of aligns 30 years ago with the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the disassembling of the Soviet Union and, kind of, you know, the end of the Cold War, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um there are people that are out there and a scenario that could play out um, that, you know, we go back into an event like that or a period like that, um, where China and Russia are kind of aligned in, in a rivalry scenario against the U.S. and Western Europe and many of the other countries around the globe trying to decide where they, um, where they side or how they play one against another. You know, what I would say is, you know, that period of kind of global cooperation that's lasted roughly 30 years, um, may be coming to an end with, um, you know, with the event signifying that Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, it's yet to be seen, but I certainly think that that's a potential threat to expanding world trade going forward. Yeah. So. 
you know, so now let's go, come back to this question of price. I, I want to put a, this to you, Patricia. Um, you know, we've we've talked about the strong growth in biofuels. We've talked about there's some positives on the supply side, but some risks, especially risks around trade uh, with disruptions in trade. Um, we've touched on climate change. Um, and then th those things are all sort of new in the last 12 to 24 months. But in agriculture, we're always dealing with weather risk, you know. Um, how would you describe the environment over the next three to five years with respect to price, price levels, and price volatility? Sort of bring it all together a little bit here for us. An easy question <laughs> in terms of prices. So if we think the next three to five years, let's put it like that. And if you ask me, okay, your opinion in one sentence, I would say that I don't expect prices to revert to where they were before these two main disruptions. Right? I don't expect I don't expect that for for several reasons. One, let's let's start uh, with stocks. If we look at the trend of the, the share of China in total stocks, and here I'm talking about all the key uh, agri-commodities, grains, um, soybeans, I mean, all, all, all these commodities we've been, we are looking at, the share of China has been increasing over the past years. So it, this means that the available stocks to, uh, to deal with uh, external shocks uh, is lower, uh, so it's, this increases vulnerability, and we know that this has an impact uh, on prices. Now, if we add to this uh, the share of stocks, particularly in grains, that is also in Russia and Ukraine, uh, then you know this uh, number increases. So we see that uh, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty uh, related to this, and even if uh, the war ends today. I mean, there's a big question of how long will it take for everything to normalize? And when I'm yeah. saying everything is not only the infrastructure, but it's also, you know, we are talking about agriculture. So there are cycles. We have to prepare the land, uh, get the inputs, uh, plant and, uh, and everything. So uh, if, if we focus in three to five years time, uh, I think most likely we won't see a full normalization uh, of, uh, of the export situation in, in Ukraine and out of the Black Sea. Uh, and this is a very important region for grains, as, as Paul mentioned. Right. Uh, the second thing I would highlight, and you touched, is, is the weather, right? I mean, we've seen more uh, extreme events, uh, more frequent extreme events impacting uh, eggs. Paul mentioned that uh, the eels have, have not necessarily uh, uh, we haven't seen a big impact in terms of the long-term uh, trends. Uh, okay. And actually, we believe that the seed companies have been doing a great job in terms of resistance to drought, for example. But uh, there's a, a new uncertainty level, which is, okay, what if we kind of accumulate drought cycles? Well, the, the seeds and the plant resisted pretty well after a very strong drought. What does it, it mean? You know, after a second strong or a third strong drought, which is uh, a higher risk with uh, with the climate change, and uh, and the third factor I would highlight is is demand. Population continues to grow at a slower level than 10, 20 years ago, but still growing. So the demand for food uh, will uh, likely continue to increase. We also have all this renewable uh, demand, as Paul mentioned, 
a lot of things are being announced uh, now in the past 18 months, particularly in the US, but all this capacity will come online maybe in like three years, four years, five years time. That's when we will see really the big uh, pre uh, pressure on, uh, on in terms of prices. So I'm not saying that I'm bullish from here, but I see a lot of uncertainty. Uh, also, there's a, a very strong call for uh, security of supply, also more sustainable uh, uh, products and supply chains, and this is a, as a price. Uh, so this is why I think the price will be higher than the historical, um, the historical average. Yeah. Well, so and thank you for taking the that, that's the, the 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 tough question of uh, you know where are prices going to go, but you know I, I think from the environment you described that makes a lot of sense. So in the last minute here uh, that we have, um, uh, let's I just want to ask you both um, in terms of advice for clients. Another kind of another difficult question, but if you just have some general thoughts on how our clients should be thinking about this environment as we've described it. Um, what would you say, Paul, start with you and uh, then we'll go to Patricia. Yeah, I'll, I'll really say uh, two things is is one, um, clients and users, those people in, in agricultural commodities need to think about the world in a more global fashion than they ever have in the past. Um, you know, again, it, it's, it's no longer what Europe produces, what North America produces, you have to think of it in a, in a total global fashion. The, that's number one. Number two is uh, I suspect agricultural commodities are gonna be tied to the ener energy markets like never before going forward. As the markets, as these markets and the world looks to uh, biofuels to reduce greenhouse gases. Yeah, Patricia, anything to add to that? Uh... Yeah, um, maybe I would add like, you know, that things are getting more complex. Uh, there's, there will likely continue to, 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 to be a lot of volatility. So the, the companies need to, to prepare uh, for that, right? Need to, to make their risk management, I believe will become even more important. It has been important, but it will uh, continue to be not only on the uh, price side, but also in terms of, uh, of um, supply chain, uh, and all of that. And, and to do that, uh, they will need a lot of data, a lot of information. Uh, and we know there's a lot of data everywhere with the internet, with uh, a lot of things, but there's also uh, a strong need to filter uh, this data and to have a, a sound opinion to, to that. And we hope we, we could support on, on that front. Great, great. And that's probably a great point to end on, you know, that what what does it all mean? And, and I think um, uh, in the last 25 minutes, you both have done a terrific job of boiling down the massive amount of data that we deal all the time within our ag space. But as, as we mentioned earlier, with our colleagues in the energy space and mobility and, and maritime and so forth, um, and bringing it all to what it means for the clients. So Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, Paul. And thank you all for listening in to this uh, Sierra Week Conversations.